1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we are reading this morning. One Timothy chapter six. We're going to think today about the godly man, the man of God, and that's what we need today. We need men of God. We need women of God. We need people who are godly to be salt and to be light in this wicked world. And uh, Paul speaks about that. And I thought, just as we've been going through uh, this pastoral epistle with emphasis. Uh, upon the pastoral life, the pastoral role, and also the church responsibility uh, to the pastor. Then I thought we'd just conclude this morning by looking at this little tract, beginning in verse 11, reading down to verse 16, where Paul says in conclusion to Timothy, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, again, we thank thee this morning for your goodness and your grace and your mercies, which are new every morning. We thank you today for our salvation and for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are reminded this Lord's Day, as we are each Sunday, of his glorious resurrection and that we gather here not to worship some idol, some dead God, some God of vain imagination, but the God of heaven and earth and the one who is risen from the dead and even now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Father, we ask today that you would bless us as we look into your word, that we would have your help and know your uh, power by the grace of your Holy Spirit. Lead us and guide us into all truth, we pray. And we ask, God, that our souls would be touched and fed, that our lives would be changed and conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The greatest need in this present hour right throughout the church is for godly men and women. And in particular, I think, for men of God. You know, it's amazing to me how many churches are packed with women and there are so few men. I'm glad to say that we generally buck that trend here at Milton and have a uh, even-handed demographic with about 50% male and female. But in many churches, that is not the case. And oftentimes, the churches are uh, heavy on the female side. And we're glad for the godly women, for sure. But we need also godly men. And God is seeking out men. He's looking for real men, manly men. 
and above all godly men who will champion the cause of Christ in this late hour in a wholehearted commitment to the Lord Jesus and to his great commission. The writer Ezekiel said this in the Old Testament, speaking, as, of course, under inspiration and in quoting God, I sought out a man from among them that would make, should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. What an indictment that was upon the people of Judah and upon the people of that day. You see, it wasn't that Ezekiel or God was saying that there weren't any males. There was, I assume, 50% of the population who were males. When he says, I looked for a man among them, but I could find none. He's not referring to the gender. You know, being male is a matter of gender. It's a consequence of conception and genetics. But being a male is not the same as being a man, especially a man of God. So our homes today need godly men. Our wives need godly husbands. Our children need godly fathers. Our community needs godly leaders. Our country needs godly politicians. Our churches today need godly men who will stand in the hedge and fill the gap, who will be what God calls us to be. Now our text this morning draws our attention to the characteristics of a godly man, the markings of such a man. Notice Paul writes, But thou, O man of God... He calls Timothy a man of God. What a commendation. What an encouragement to this pastor that he is referred to and labeled as a man of God by the Apostle Paul. Better yet, to be called a man of God through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. This is a marvelously rich designation that has been afforded Timothy, and it connects Timothy to a deep spiritual heritage going back to Old Testament times. Moses was known as the man of God. Excuse me. <clears throat> I have a little bit of a frog in my throat today. A present from Max. Um, but anyway, Moses was known as the man of God, <coughs> as was Samuel. As was Elijah, Elisha, David, <coughs> and others who were named as men of God. And, uh, you know, from time to time, God used men of God, unnamed prophets, to rebuke uh, kings. It's a noble designation. And strikingly, the only person that it applies to in the whole of the New Testament is not one of the twelve, but Timothy. Isn't that interesting? This young apprentice preacher is alone in getting this label attached to him in all the, all the New Testament. So here is Timothy, the retiring, timid young pastor who Paul must keep exhorting to be bold in the faith and confronting error and preaching truth. Timothy, who had a lot of personal handicaps to overcome in fulfilling his call. Remember, he had the handicap of youth, he had the difficulty of being a shy and retiring person. He had physical ailments in terms of his stomach illness. And yet for all of that, he is deemed to be a man of God. So what is a man of God? Well, verse 11 tells us that a man of God is one who flees from the right things. 
Notice what it says there in verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Now, in the original language, the phrase, but thou, is emphasized. And it's emphasizing the character of the man of God in stark contrast with the character of the ungodly who are preceded in this passage uh, by being described in various ways. And so he's to stand apart from the world. A man of God steps apart from the society around him. Uh, those prior to Timothy are referred to here as being proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. But you, Timothy, you're to be different. You are a man of God. <coughs> they are men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. But you are a man of God. They suppose, like the modern health and wealth preachers, that godliness is identified by gain. But Paul teaches the opposite. He tells us that lives that are drawn to, toward money and the love of money uh, enter into various temptations and snares of the devil. And uh, consequently, they suffer many foolish and hurtful lusts and err from the faith uh, through their covetousness. But thou, Timothy, but thou, O man of God, he says, flee these things. And the word flee there is a Greek word, a phago, from which we get the word fugitive. He says, be a fugitive in this world. Now, I have to tell you that one of my least favorite movies is the movie The Fugitive. Have you ever seen that movie starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones? I hate that movie. That is the dumbest movie I've ever watched. My wife loves it. I don't know why, but I just think it's nonsense. But nevertheless, the guy is constantly on the run, isn't he, in that movie? The character that's played by Harrison Ford is falsely accused, I think, of a murder or something. And uh, he's running from pillar to post to avoid capture uh, by Tommy Lee uh, Jones. And uh, here's the idea. The man of God is constantly on the run. He's constantly fighting against this world's system. He's not on the run from the law, of course. At least we hope he's not on the law, on the run from the law. If you call a pastor who's on the run from the law, I guarantee you his ministry will be short-lived. <laughs> uh, but we're not looking for someone who's on the run from the law, but we're looking on someone uh, towards someone who is on the run from the lusts of this world. You know, he's, uh, he's one who is, uh, who's, constantly uh, trying to avoid youthful lusts. He's on the run from immorality. Uh, here he's on the run from the love of money. You see, the man of God has learned the lesson that Paul expresses in verse 6 of this chapter when he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So he doesn't live for this world. He doesn't live for money. He's not living for material possessions. Those things serve a purpose uh, in his life for sure, just as they ought to in all of our lives if we're living out a balanced view of, uh, of money and finances. But they don't constitute the purpose of his life. You know, people in this life largely live for money. You know, the old saying is that money makes the world go around. Money is what moves the government, doesn't it? The government takes a high moral stand unless it's in case of the government making lots of money and then we're happily making arrangements with China, which is an immoral nation. Or at least it's got a moral leadership. 
Uh, we'll, do, we'll do trade deals with Saudi Arabia and other countries that uh, behave immorally and, and persecute uh, minorities and so on. We have no qualms about that. Why? Because money makes the world go around. You know, the reason why the national lottery is a success in this country is because people seek after riches. They seek after wealth. They want to get rich quick. And they think money is the answer to their lives. But the Bible says the opposite. And so the man of God flees materialism. He flees the entrapments that are brought about by covetousness and the desire to get rich quick. He takes to heart the Savior's admonition when he said this, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. In other words, your life isn't about your home, your car, your clothes. It's not about the material things you own, the gadgetry and the electronics and, and all those fancy things that bedazzle us. It's not about that. Life is about the glory of God. And the man of God keeps that as his focus. And he runs as a fugitive from the worldview that teaches us that materialism is the answer to the human heart's needs. Then a man of God not only flees from the right things, he follows after the right things. Look at verse 11 again. He says, and follow after righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, patience, meekness. So here Paul lists six virtues, which he does in three couplets, which the man of God must pursue after. Now the first two, righteousness and godliness, are really general virtues. Righteousness has to do with your general behavior, your general conduct. Uh, your outward conduct and godliness, well, that's, that's to do with your inner motivation, why you live in a godly uh, way. It refers to personal piety, to reverence, to your likeness to God and things of God. In essence, it represents true holiness, virtue, spirituality. So he says to begin with, a man of God is right both in his outward behavior and in his inward motivation for that behavior. The second couplet is faith and love. And faith is, we know, just a simple reliance upon the Word of God. Faith must have an object, and our faith is in the Word of God. And the love spoken of here is the agape love, which is peculiarly Christian, a love of volition, a love of choice, a love in which we determine we will love other people uh, for the, uh, by the grace of God and for the glory of God, and uh, not because they're necessarily lovable, but because I choose to love people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's love without preconditions, love without restriction. It loves the saints, but it also loves the sinner. And so it really is a, a tremendous expression of the heart of God. And in being commanded to pursue these things, I am reminded that Paul described it to the Corinthians as the greatest gift of all the gifts that are to be sought out. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a moment. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And verse 27. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 12, of course, speaks about the gifts. And it gets to the end of this chapter and this discussion on the gifts of the Spirit. 
And he says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments or administration, diversities of tongues, different kinds of languages, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Those are rhetorical questions, the answer to which is no throughout. Obviously, all are not apostles, all are not prophets, all are not teachers, and so on. All do not speak with tongues, although many suggest that unless you do, you do not have evidence of salvation. But the Bible says that not all do. And so it says, verse 31, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. What is that more excellent way? Well, he leads into it in chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, again, he's speaking hypothetically here. Paul did not speak with the tongues of all men or of angels. He did not have all understanding. Only God has all knowledge. He says, Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And in verse 13 he says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. You know, here's the thing that you ought to desire in any man of God, and particularly in a pastor, is that he is loving he loves the people God places under his charge. Even if he disagrees with those people, he continues to love those people and to minister to those people to the best of his ability. The third couplet that is referenced in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11 is patience and, in, and meekness. And in some ways these are contrasting virtues. Patience refers to endurance. Uh, the characteristic of a man that one says who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Now understand that if Timothy is going to prove himself to be a man of God and tackle the issues that indeed will raise their head at the church of Ephesus, he's going to have to suffer to some degree. Uh, it's not always going to be a comfortable ride for him. Do you think that those that Paul has already highlighted here as false teachers who are making their livelihood out of their uh, so-called ministry, do you think they're going to be happy when this pastor comes in and tries to correct their doctrine and tries to correct their behavior and they're going to say, isn't our new pastor wonderful? No, they're going to give him a, a hard time. They're going to give him a rough ride. And so they're going to highlight his youth. They're going to contest his teachings. They're going to challenge his lifestyle. Uh, that's why in 2 Timothy 3.12, the young man is reminded, yeah, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He says, if you're going to be a godly man, be prepared to take some flack because there are some people who are not going to respond well to your piety. So despite the criticisms and the personal attacks upon his character, Timothy would have to 
persevere. And it would be that virtue of perseverance or patience that would enable this man to stick at the task, to do what God called him to do, no matter what the cost. And finally, he must follow or pursue after meekness. And that intimates that the man of God must seek to have a gentler side. He must be a gentleman. You know, a pastor has a degree of authority under God. He's not, uh, he's not a, a king. He, he doesn't uh, rule the church by divine right. But he does have authority. And God has given him the right to rule uh, as one of the elders of the church. But the thing is, he must never abuse his authority. He must indeed be careful uh, to keep that power under control and use it for the benefit of God's people and for the furtherance of God's kingdom. So he must pursue after meekness. And then in verse 12, we see a man of God is one who fights for the right things. He flees the right things. He follows after the right things. He fights for the right things. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now the word fight there in the Greek is the word from which we get the English word agonize. He's told to agonize uh, for, the, uh, for the faith. It's a, it is in this first instance a military term. Uh, it's, uh, later on becomes associated with athletics and the concentration of discipline and, uh, and conviction and effort that is needed to win any athletic competition. You know, whether you're a sports fan or not, I think we've all seen in our lifetimes the agony on the faces of certain athletes. You know, if you're watching the Olympics, you see the agony of some of those people as they put themselves through the paces. So as you're sitting home and watching the TV and watching the Olympics uh, or whatever and eating your cake and drinking your tea, you look at these poor souls and you think, why are they doing this to themselves? But you can see that they're absolutely committed to their sport. Their goal is to win that gold medal or that trophy or whatever it is. And the same is true if you've ever observed young soldiers being put through the rigors of training. You know, they come out of high school and, uh, and head into the army. And you know how it is when you're a teenager, you know, you don't realize that there's, a, there's 12 hours that begin the day. Uh, usually they're, you know, getting up in the middle of the day sometimes. Suddenly they're now having to get up in the middle of the night and march across fields for miles on end with a backpack on their shoulders and some drill sergeant who's screaming at them. And, uh, you know, you Watch, I like watching those programs sometimes where they take you to these boot camps and they show you these young men and how they develop. And you can see the agony in their faces sometimes. You know, they're on their knees. They're, they're being sick on occasions uh, because they're being pushed to their absolute limits and they're being put through the stamina of the test. And that's exactly what is on view here. The tent suggests that this fight is no quick scuffle. It's not the handbags. At you know, dawn, this is an ongoing war of attrition. It's a long-term battle. You know, today in Normandy, they've opened this lovely memorial uh, for the men who stormed the Normandy beaches. Well, when those men jumped off those ships onto the shore, that wasn't the end of the battle. That was just the beginning of the battle. It was a long, drawn-out campaign to work their way into the heart of France and to break those German lines. 
And that's the idea here. This is a battle that is fought continuously without reprieve. There is no opportunity to lay down your sword. You've got to stick at it till you get to the end of the battle and secure the victory. Now notice that the man of God is not to waste his time and his energy in this battle, uh, agonizing about the wrong things. He's not to fight any fight, but he's to fight the good fight. He's not to be a pugnacious character. He's not to be a militant in the sense that he fights everybody about everything. But he has to pick and choose his battles. He has to decide what really is worthy to be fought as part of the good fight. And what is a battle that is best left uh, to let others get on with. He's not just to punch all around him. You know, sometimes Christian people, and, and sadly even Christian ministers, expend a lot of time fighting the wrong battles. Some things are not worth fighting about. So there are things that you and I can disagree with. I may walk away and shake my head and think, you know, you're wrong about that. But I'm not going to come back and bark at you about it. Why? Because it's the wrong battle. It's not important. And so Timothy is told that he's to fight, notice the good fight of faith. And the, and the idea here is of the faith is of the whole spectrum of Scripture, the whole entire body of scriptural truth. That, in the words of Jude, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints or for the saints. So in fighting the faith, the man of God should also then lay hold on eternal life because the faith focuses on matters of eternity. So there are some things that aren't worth fighting about. You know, there's not some, you know, it's amazing what Christian people fall out over. Somebody moved a table. I remember moving a table one time. A lady came to me and said, who moved that table? I said, I moved that table. She says, that table's never been moved before. I said, well, it's been moved now. She says, but that table doesn't go there. I said, well, it goes there now. <laughs> and the lady was quite head up about it. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, why get worked up about moving a table? You know, uh, I, I, I t- taught our young men this and in Bible school, told them that story actually. And uh, one of them said he thought I was making it up until he went into the pastorate and he had the same conversation with somebody else. <laughs> we, get, we get caught up about the wrong things. You know, we'll get all fired up about seating arrangements and, and, and you know, trifles and miss the real deal. And the real deal focuses on eternal things. So in fighting for the faith, the man of God lays hold on eternal life. You know, a few years ago, um, there was a campaign by a leading ecumenical charity that ran what I thought was a rather sanctimonious advertising campaign with this slogan, we believe in life before death. And there was, a, there was a, an underhanded criticism there, I felt, of evangelical people. The suggestion being that, well, those evangelicals They're not doing anything for people here and now, which is not true. But the inference was, they're not doing anything for people here and now. They're just concerned about the hereafter. But we, we're concerned about you here 
and now. And it seemed to me that the whole ad campaign really struck at the idea of life after death. And it put a little stock in the notion of life after death and seemed to suggest that those who believed in eternal values were, of so, were so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly use. <coughs> but the opposite is also true. A person can be so worldly minded as to be of no heavenly use. Because the Lord will not use a worldly person to good effect. He's not going to use one whose whose focus is upon the things of this life alone. And so Timothy is told that he should lay hold on eternal life. Paul told him that, not in the sense of his salvation, but in the sense of sanctification. You see, literally Timothy needed to get a grip on the reality of eternity and minister in the light of eternity. The man of God who is motivated by eternity sets his affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And it was this kind of ministry that Timothy was called of God to, a fact which he had professed before many witnesses in all likelihood at his ordination. And then notice, finally, a man of God is one who is faithful to the right person. He flees from the right things. He follows after the right things. He fights for the right things. And he's faithful to the right person. Notice verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now this is the third time that Timothy has charged, has been charged of Paul. If you like, it's the third time that he's had a specific uh, commandment laid upon him. In uh, chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul wrote this charge, I commit unto thee, Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that by them thou mightest war a good warfare. Very similar uh, to fighting the good fight. And uh, again, in chapter 5 and verse 21, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. So here he is charged in respect to the Lord. And in giving this charge, Timothy is pointed to God as the source of life and the example of the Lord Jesus as one who remained steadfast. In particular, he points to the conduct of the Savior as he comes into Pilate's judgment hall and as he stands before the procurator of Judea, knowing that Pilate had, at least humanly speaking, his life in his hands, the Lord Jesus did not flinch from his convictions. He didn't say, you know what, this is, this is not what I anticipated. Uh, I apologize. I'm going to go back to being a carpenter. Uh, I, I'm sorry for causing you all this trouble. No, he didn't, he didn't do any of that. He stuck it out. Remember, Pilate therefore said unto him, according to John, Art thou a king then? And Jesus said, Thou sayest that I am a king. He didn't say, I'm not a king. He said, you said I'm a king. You're confirming what I am. 
To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. You know, I love that. He didn't, he didn't bow before Pilate. You know, he didn't buckle beneath his power. He stood up to him. And he said, that's why I came into the world. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm here to declare the truth unto anybody who will hear it, including you, Pilate. You see, he didn't flinch. There was no giving him. The Lord Jesus was totally committed to the truth. He held fast to his confession. No matter what the cost, Peter said this of him. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He says it doesn't matter what they threw at him. When he was reviled, he stuck on course. When he suffered, he stuck on course. When he stood before Pilate, he stuck on the course. Now Timothy was told to hold fast his confession and to his commitments that he made at his ordination, just as Jesus stood the ground before Pontius Pilate. Timothy too must not flinch. He must not waver. But remain true and faithful to the Lord and to his word until the Lord appears to relieve him of his duties. Look in verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot. Be a godly man. Unrebukable. Let your life be above reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, occupy till I come. And Timothy is told here to do just that. You occupy your territory till the Lord comes, till the reinforcements arrive, as it were. Listen to me. The man of God's first loyalty, whether he's a pastor in the pulpit or the man in the pew, must be always God and his word. His loyalty must always be first to God and to his word. And that's what Paul's teaching Timothy. His loyalty must be first and foremost to Christ, not to the congregation. You know, again and again, preachers are told in, in Scripture not to fear the faces of the people to whom they're preaching. And you know, some people have faces that are fearsome. <laughs> you know, people sometimes give you a scowl, uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, they indicate simply by facial expression that they don't approve of what, you've, what you're preaching. Um, and, and, you, you know, you, you pick up on all of that. You know, you, you have the misfortune of just looking at my face, uh, but uh, I, I have to look at, as any preacher does, at the whole congregation. And that's a, a mixture of faces, and some faces can look mean-spirited. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you, sometimes you make misjudgments about people. If you don't know the congregation, you might look at somebody and think, well, you know, she looks pretty austere. And uh, you meet her afterwards and she's just lovely and saintly. And you can misjudge a book by its cover, can't you? Uh, but nevertheless, you know, the, the, Timothy's not to bow to pressure, not from the appearance of his congregation or indeed even from the criticisms of his congregation, even as long as he's on course with the word of God. He's not to bow to the pressure of his peers. You know, some preachers are, are, are not so much preaching to the congregation in front of them as they're preaching to the people behind them, their supporters or their peers. You know, they're preaching to win the approval of fellow pastors. Well, listen, it's not the pastor's job to win the approval of other pastors. It's the pastor's job to win the approval of Christ. 
So he, he mustn't be moved by his peers, nor indeed must he be governed by his wife. You know, some pastors, I'm sorry to say, they're in the pulpit, but the wife is behind pulling the strings. The pastor's lips are moving, but the wife's words are coming out. And you know, I, I honestly, I mean, my wife's not here this morning for this service, but I thank God for her. She's never tried to do that. She's never tried to influence me in the, in the pulpit and what I preach or, or, or what I say and, or any of those things. You know, there have been occasions when I've caught her eye and she's looked at me and said, don't say that. Because <laughs> she knows where I'm going. And uh, when I see that little glimmer in her eye, then I think that's the Holy Spirit telling me to say that. So I go ahead and say it anyway. <laughs> she understands that. Thank the Lord. But you know, the pastor's first loyalty, as far as his ministry goes, is not to his wife. It's not to the congregation. It's not to his peers. It's not to his wife. It's not to his family. It's not to his own selfish interests. He shouldn't preach for a pension. You know, there are some preachers and some denominations and they won't tell the whole truth because they know if they do, it's going to hurt their pension. Well, shame on them. He doesn't preach for his own ambitions. He's not preaching so as he can work his way up into a bigger, more prestigious pulpit. He's preaching for Christ. And a man is not a man of God unless the Lord is the Lord of his life, which is what Paul presents in the doxology of verses 15 and 16. He says, which in times past he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Notice Christ is to be the only potentate. He's the only ruler. A pastor rules, but he rules on behalf of the ruler, Christ. He's, a, he's a, an under-shepherd. He's not the chief shepherd. Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. No one comes before him. You know, the Roman Catholic Church claims these titles for the pope. The pope bears the title potentate. What a blasphemy that is. I mean, the Bible is very clear that there's only one potentate. He's the only potentate. There aren't two potentates or three potentates or hundreds of potentates. There's only one potentate, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The man who sits in Rome is an imposter. There's only one king. There's only one Lord. And if you want to be the potentate, here's the qualifications. You have to be immortal. You have to be transcendent. You have to be invisible. Look at verse 16. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. I don't think the Pope can fulfill those qualifications. Can, do you? I mean, popes come and popes go. Popes aren't immortal. Uh, popes can, uh, can be approached onto. You can aspire to be a pope if you're a bishop or a cardinal in the Catholic Church. You can try to move up the hierarchy and get on that seat. You know, whom no man has seen nor can see. 
as far as I know, every pope alive has been seen. <laughs> there are no invisible popes. So there's really no place for him to take these titles. And really what Paul is telling Timothy, he's not speaking obviously about the, the papacy. He's not speaking about Roman Catholicism because that wasn't even a thing whenever uh, this epistle was written. But he's telling him that he needs to realize in terms of eternity who ultimately is on the throne. He needs to realize that the one who demands our loyalty as preachers is immortal. That's an attribute of God. Only God is truly immortal. The eternal is truly inherent in him and in him alone. The Lord who demands our loyalty is transcendent. He lives in unapproachable light, in the light which no man can approach. Light always speaks of holiness. Our first loyalty then is to the Holy One of Israel, the one who is light and whom dwelleth no darkness at all. And the Lord who demands our loyalty is invisible, whom no man hath seen nor can see. No doubt Paul, as he was writing these words, has in, in, in his mind an incident from many years before when Moses craved to see God. Do you remember that moment? He asked if he could see God. God says, you can't see me. If you see me, you'll die. He says, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in this cleft of the rock. If you get in the cleft of the rock here, I'll pass by and you can see my after parts. You can see my train, as it were, as I pass by. You can see a little bit of my glory. Of course, the cleft of the rock represents the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? If any man wants to see God, he has to be in Christ. So what has Paul stated about God as he closes out this pastoral epistle? Well, that he's the king eternal, immortal, and invisible. And if that sounds familiar to you, it ought to, because obviously we sing a hymn that uses those very words. It's also the, uh, the, the, the hymn that is used at the outset of this book in chapter 1 of, of uh, 1 Timothy and verse 17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, the Lord alone is the one who deserves our love and our loyalty and our faithfulness. And these are the marks of a man, or indeed even of a woman, of God. Ezekiel wrote, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. You know, as our church proceeds towards the calling of a new pastor, that's the kind of godliness that you ought to be looking for. But it's also the kind of godliness that you yourself ought to aspire unto. Because godliness is not a one-way street. It's not just the pastor who's called to be godly. The people of God are called to be godly. All of us are called to be godly. And the question is, are you that kind of man this morning? Are you that kind of person this morning, that kind of woman this morning, who can fill that gap? Do you meet the bill? Do you pass the test of godliness? You know, it's easy to put other people's feet to the fire and say, we want this in our pastor. But wait a minute, are those things evident in our lives? You see, before we pass a judgment upon another, what does the Bible tell us first to do? To judge ourselves judge ourselves first. 
Do you flee from the right things? Do you follow after the right things? Do you fight the right battles? And are you faithful to the right person? May God help each and every one of us to be a godly man, to be a godly woman. Let's pray.